0: We're going to be in Acts chapter 21 this morning, Acts 21. Let's pray and get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for just those that you brought out today. A lot going on today. We just think of the graduations, Memorial Day weekend, people traveling. Just be with them. They couldn't be here this morning. But if are right here, right now, we want to learn of you, grow in you, go deeper in you. Give us ears to hear, not just hear it, Lord, but to apply it and always say and do in your name. Amen. A couple quick announcements before I forget. Uh, we have a wedding this afternoon, actually, out here at church. So after the service, if you wouldn't mind help splitting the chairs, we'd appreciate that. And we also need to clear off the stage as well for the wedding. So if you would not mind helping with that, we would appreciate that greatly. All righty, Acts 21. We're at a very unique part here in the book of Acts because at this point in Acts 21, it changes the rest of the book of Acts. Paul is going to get arrested, and as he gets arrested, it creates this chain of events that takes us through the rest of of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 21, he is arrested, he is beaten. Then in Acts 22, he gets a chance to witness to the mob that is beating him. And then in Acts 23, he goes before the Sanhedrin and they try to assassinate him. Then he's sent to the Roman governor and he's there for two years. And really what Acts 21 does is start a string of events that takes you all the way through the end of Acts 28. Now, the problem with that is we only have so much time. So I don't know how far we're going to get I said this at the 8.30 service, and I think we only got five verses. So, we don't know, because it's nice to do this all together in one flow. I just want to stop here real quick and just share this thought. I can't remember how long ago it was. It was a couple years ago, I think. Um, I got a Bible that has no chapter breaks and no verses in it. And it's really quite different. But when you start reading it, especially in the book of Acts it really creates this wonderful flow because you see then how this is one continuous thought. We're used to chapter breaks and verses that were added years later and they serve a great purpose. It gives us a location of where to find scriptures. But some of these passages, when you just get the flow of it, it really goes wonderful. So there's not a great place to stop here from Acts 21 on. So we're just going to kind of let the Spirit lead and see how far we go. But it creates this chain of events. Now this should not be something that's new to us. Paul's been talking about this for the last couple weeks. That he was going to go to Rome. He knew he was going to go to Rome. It was prophesied that he was going to go to Rome in chains. And he was willing to because it's an opportunity to represent the gospel. His life means nothing to him. Take a look here. Let's remind ourselves of Acts 21, verse 13. Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, I'm willing to give up everything for the Lord. I'm not going to withhold anything. Jump back one chapter. Let's remind ourselves of what he said in Acts 20, verse 24. None of these things move me nor do I count my life dear to myself so I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is one of the points of Paul's life. When he died to himself, he was able to live completely fully for the Lord. And that's our goal, is to reach a point where we stop and say, it does not matter about me. What brings glory to the Lord? I was just praying and reading over that verse where Jesus talked about the kernel of wheat... The kernel of wheat has to die to produce more crop. And the same thing happens for us when we finally let go of what we think and what we want and really live for him. You experience what it really means to live for the Lord. Now, if that comes across as some type of legalism or have to, you're not understanding. By by dying to this world system and, and to what I think and to what I want actually frees me. Because now I'm no longer in chains, if you will, by this system and by myself. It's like, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's your goal? What brings your glory? Because that's what we want to do. Paul uses this terminology of finishing the race. And there's a couple points about that. First thing is this you're in a race. Some of you are running, and you don't know where you're running, and you don't know why you're running. But you're running. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, that's like fighting the air. You're running with uncertainty, is what he says. Now, if you've ever punched the air, you know what I'm talking about. That wears you down and wears you out. Now, that doesn't make sense. You would think hitting something or someone would create more effort. No, just swinging with all your effort at the air is going to wear you down and wear you out. And you know people, and you may be one of those people that you are running and you don't know where or why, you're running with uncertainty and you wonder why, life just seems to not be going the way you hoped for. Or you picked your own course. See, Paul said in Corinthians that he runs the race that is set before him. Set before him. God sets the race before you and we trust his race is what's best. And that's what he talked about in 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I just want to encourage you, realize you are running. Like it or not, you are. What's the race that's set before you? Where are you running? Why are you running? What is your purpose? What is your finish line? Because what I see here with Paul, he knows he's going to Rome. He knows he's going into chains. And he knows his life is going to be threatened. And he says, I'm fine with this. Because my life means nothing to me. Because I've given it completely, fully over to the Lord. And what a blessing that is. And when you reach that point, and we're all in that process of trying to reach that point of saying, Lord, it's no longer about me, it's about you. Oh, man, that's when we can really live. So let's see what we got here. Acts 21. Let's pick it up in verse 15. After those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. See, first person in verse 15, Luke, the writer of Acts, is now going with them and they're traveling up to Jerusalem. And they come to Caesarea. Excuse me, they bring some disciples from Caesarea. And they find themselves with this manasin, an early disciple. And they get a chance to lodge with them. That's all we know about the guy. Now, it was interesting to me, because what happens is this. God never puts anything in the Bible without a reason or purpose. We don't have any other information about this guy. We just know that he was willing to open up his house, and we know that he was an early disciple. So what does that mean? Time frame here in the book of Acts, we're about 20, 25 years after Christ died on the cross. So what's an early disciple? Okay, we can go to the extremes on this. Let's say that he got saved at an early age, age 5. He's about 30 years old then. That's probably the low end. Okay, let's say he got saved in his 20s maybe. I don't know, 30s. Okay, he's in his 40s, 50s. Maybe he was a little bit older. Maybe he was in his 60s. So he's in his 80s. We don't know exactly how old he is, but we know that this guy has been with the Lord now for a few decades. And I'm just fascinated by this man. I don't want to add to the scriptures, but I just love to think about it. Early disciple, what's that mean? Early disciple from like Pentecost? So he was there near the day of Pentecost? Or early disciple, like going back to the actual earthly ministry of Jesus? Like, was he one of the 70? Was he one of the guys that saw the feeding of the 5,000? Did he see Jesus in earthly form? What stories could he tell? What was his walk with the Lord like? And I just absolutely love thinking about this, the stories that he could have told. He probably got saved before Paul. I think that's a shoe-in right there and so therefore here's Paul the man that used to persecute the church once again staying with somebody who was the church. It's just fascinating to see what the body of Christ was like. And it really reminds me of the importance the importance of the different generations of believers in the body of Christ. We need this different group of people to minister to people. Go with me to Titus if you will please. Titus Titus has a great passage in here that kind of shows the different roles, the different themes that we're in in life. Titus chapter 2. We need these menaceans, these early disciples, that have that resume of walking with the Lord and to pass on that wisdom and knowledge to the rest of the church. Titus chapter 2. Titus is a great book. Paul writing to Titus, a very young protege, teaching him how to be a pastor, teaching him how to be a ministry leader, and he sums up very nicely what the church is supposed to look like. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Okay, now right there we should stop and say, what's sound doctrine? This is what a church is supposed to look like. I'm telling you right now, you're running into a whole different lot of churches, doing a whole different lot of things. Let's really just stop and look at what the Bible says the church is supposed to be doing. Verse 2, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. Older men that are here today, I will let you determine whether you're the older man or not. That's between you and the Lord, just don't lie. Older men, you are supposed to be sober. Now, we think of sober as not drinking, and that's one definition of sober. But the biblical definition of sober, there's a seriousness about what you do. You understand. You've walked with the Lord. You understand the seriousness of what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be reverent. An attitude of worship with the Lord. Because you've been down this path. God deserves the glory and praise. Temperate. Temperate. You're even keel. When you think about most older men, you, you think about them being the grumpy guy that's yelling at the kid, stay off my lawn. That's not supposed to be the older men in the body of Christ. There's supposed to be a seriousness, a worshipfulness, a temperance, sound in faith and love and patience. We see a lot with older men. The older they get, the grouchier they get. That's not the way it's supposed to be biblically. I've been joking a lot with Rich. You know, I've been telling for years, Rich has no filter between head and mouth. And it's getting worse as the older he gets. It's just, Richard isn't retiring. We're firing him because we're afraid. We don't know what he's going to say one time. So we just got to let him go. But you see this with these older men. It's just, that's not the way it's put. This is what the older man is supposed to be. So if you put yourself in the older men category, there's your homework. Seriousness about your faith. A worshipfulness about your faith. An even keel in your faith. Sound in faith and love and patience. That's what we need. Verse 3, the older women... Likewise, they may be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. They admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Okay, older women, once again, I will let you determine what category you're in when it comes to this. You're supposed to be reverent in your behavior, worshipful in your behavior. Not slanderers. Now, I picked on the men, I can pick on the women. Men lose the filter between head and mouth just say what they think. Most of the time, it's just opinions that have no factual basis. Women, though, they have opinions and they will share those opinions. And God bless you, women. The closer you get to the end of your race, the less you should probably talk. Because what happens is, it just more words come out, more thoughts, more opinions, more whatever. I didn't write this 2,000 years ago. I'm just telling you, I didn't write this 2,000 years ago. The Lord did. Not given to much wine. Teachers of good things. What are you supposed to teach? You're supposed to teach the next generation of women to do what? Love their husbands. Love their children. Older women, you've been in that phase if you've had kids of trying to get two, three toddlers into church. You know the stress of that. So when you see that young mom coming in, you've been there. You know what it's like at home when the laundry never stops. You know that you want to take time to do devotions and time to discipline. You know this stuff. And so you step in and you say, there's a young woman there. That was me 30 years ago. How can I go represent Jesus Christ to her? How can I take her under my wing? Same thing with the older men. You see that young man you say, you know what? I wish I would have known this at that age. And you take that young man under your wing and you say, let's disciple each other. This is the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. What else are the young women supposed to be doing? Verse 5. To be discreet, chase. Dressing appropriately, acting appropriately, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. I think it's fascinating when it brings up the idea of the husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. We forget about this. We forget that marriage is is a picture of our walk in relationship with Jesus Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul spends all this time talking about marriage of husbands, love your wives as Christ, love the church and wives, respect, honor, submit, etc., that the world is supposed to look at us as Christians and the way we treat our spouses in our marriage, and there's supposed to be such a difference that the world stops and says, that interests me in this gospel of Jesus Christ. And the problem is most Christian marriages are no different than the world marriages really just aren't. And so our Christian marriage is supposed to be such a light and an example and difference that it is a light to the world. That's why people get married. hate to be the one that ruins this. It's not for love. It's not for companionship. It's for the glory of God. That's what it is. So what it comes down to is we're supposed to be doing this. Verse 6, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded that all things... Showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is not opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Young men, there's a seriousness to it. A pattern of good works. Not just a good work here and there, a pattern. Why is there a sober-mindedness, a seriousness? Young men are full of testosterone. They're not afraid of anything. They need to be reminded by the older men. Hey, slow down a second. Pray that through. Seek God's glory on that. What's the real witness that's going to come out of those actions? You know, you know, I remember reading, and Dawn was reading about when we started having boys, about, you know, boys, you know, just there, there's not a fear. They just, they just don't think that through, that, that something could happen. I remember telling a story about reading in some devotion about boys, that if you go up to a boy, and they're on the roof, and they're going to jump off the roof, and you say, don't jump off the roof, you could break your leg. And that the boy hears, I could, but I also may not because you said I could. I'm not making this up. We had a situation where one of our boys was in a very high spot and Don said, don't, you could break your leg and I'm not making it up. He said, but I also may not. I mean, it's just there. That mindset of I may not. What an amazing trait that is to have for the gospel. That there is no fear. You don't think about it and you just go forward and say for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's hook that young man up with an older man And let that excitement influence the older man and let the wisdom of the older man influence the younger man. Let's let the older women help the younger women. The younger women encourage the older women. This is the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. Why doesn't it? We like our time. If you've ever discipled somebody, if you've ever invested in someone's life, it's time. It's a lot of time. Part of being a bondservant to the Lord is that we give up everything we have, willfully, not forced to, willfully. We talked about that last week. We read that little article where it said, nothing is untouchable. Of your possessions, nothing is untouchable. It's the Lord's. But the one thing we like to hold on to is our time. And and what we do is, since we hold on to that time, it's like, okay, Lord, I'm willing to give you an hour. I came to church on Sunday. I'm willing to give you 15 minutes a day in the morning for devotions. I heard John Corson teach on this one time, and he uses this example. He says, imagine a TV dinner where everything is compartmentalized. You've got your mashed potatoes here, you've got your vegetables here, you've got your meat here, you got your dessert. Everything's compartmentalized. And what happens is you've got the biggest compartment, and that's kind of what we do with Jesus Christ, he says. We compartmentalize our life. We give the biggest section to God because that's what we do as Christians, but we hold on to other sections. That's mine. That's my time, etc." cetera. So, yeah, Lord, you are the most important thing, and you're so important. I'm going to give you an hour on Sunday, maybe two, three times a, a week. I'm going to give you 15 minutes a day most of the days. I'll pray before my meals. I'll represent you. And we give him the biggest compartment. John Corson comes back and says, you're looking at it all wrong. He goes, if your life is really supposed to be a pot pie, everything mixed together, all for the Lord. Now, for some of you, You're thinking about leaving the church right now because I talk about mixing food. And for some of you, I get it. That is a big deal. And I want to let you know, God love you and I hope you love me and I hope this doesn't make you leave. I'm a food mixer. The older I get, it just all gets mixed together and it doesn't bother me in the least. I got some kids that it's like the Berlin Wall between different things and it's not allowed to touch. The point though is, if we really are giving everything over to the Lord then there is no compartmentalized. There is no, I got up to devotions, I'm free now. Right, Lord? I prayed over it, I spent my time with you in the Word, and so now I I can go do what I want. No. Well, I, I need to move on with my life. I have obligations and responsibilities. I get that. So as you're doing those obligations and responsibilities, you're also constantly thinking and praying about the Lord. Every interaction is, Lord, how can I represent you? You're going out and doing something mundane. You're mowing the yard, okay? Mow the yard. Listen to worship while you do it. Pray while you do it. You're taking care of things. You pray as you do it. We stayed at this missionary house one time. And um, what it was is they left this uh, uh, dishwashing scrubbing tool. And I can't remember. It had a really cute name for it. And it was basically, um, it was called a prayer scrubber. And so it had this little note on it. That uh, they provided the scrubber, and you provide the prayer. And as you're doing dishes, you're supposed to be praying for people. And it's just those mindsets of, that's why it says in Thessalonians, you pray without ceasing. It's not some legalistic, I pray at 6 a.m., I pray at noon, I pray at 6 p.m. No. It is a pattern of life where you stop and you say, I see that person. I don't know that person, but my heart goes to that person. Lord, I just give them to you. I don't know what they're struggling with. As someone comes to mind, oh, that's right, they're having surgery today. In the name of Jesus, be with it. Or you think of the garage sale giveaway. You think of the outreaches at the fair. You think of the kids going to church camp. You may not have kids going to church camp, but you mark on your calendar that day. Not that these kids are safe or have fun. That's all good, but they grow deeper in Jesus Christ. And this is the mindset that we have, because if I'm a bondservant, I've truly given over every aspect of my life to Jesus Christ, then my time is not my time, it's the Lord's time. Now, there are biblical things, there's a Sabbath, there's a day of rest, that's biblical. But everything else is, Lord, who am I to say I'm too busy? Who am I to say this or that? We've got to be careful with those things. See, this is the something that we just, when you really stop and you think about it, It's difficult. To really stop and say, Lord, I die to all of it. That's why it's a process. It just doesn't happen overnight. Okay, Lord, I'll let that go. Okay, Lord, I'll let that go. How can I live for you? You know, we were singing, and I wrote down some of the lyrics to one of the worship songs as we were singing it. And it was the last one we did. We sang, let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. Now, I've talked about this a lot, that we sing a lot of worship songs, and the words are just there. Do we really mean it? Do we really mean that we just sang, let every breath, think about that. Let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. That we were created for God's glory. So therefore, I want everything I do to be for God's glory. And some of you are thinking, this is why I don't sing worship. But we do. We sing these songs. We say these words. I I tell you, I want everything for you be in the Lord. and I want everything for me to be in the Lord. And I want us to be able to, at the end of our lives, when we stand before God, to say, Lord, I really did it all for you. I really let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. heard a great sermon recently uh, by John Piper, and I just want to share a little bit of it. It's a very famous message that he's given. Some of you may have heard this point before. And I just got a couple little points I want to share of what he said that deals with this. That everything is for the Lord. Our life is for the Lord. God's glory is for the Lord. Who are we to think anything as we truly live for him? So this is what he says. He says, but I know that not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple good kids, and a nice car, and long weekends, and a few good friends, a fun retirement, and quick and easy death with no hell. If you could have that, you'd be satisfied even without God. He goes, that is a tragedy in the making. And then he tells this story. He goes, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Ellison and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameron. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widower a medical doctor pushing 80 years old herself and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. Their brakes gave way, over the cliff they go, and they're gone, killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives, driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away? No, that's not a tragedy, that is Glory. And then he goes on to say this. He tells the story of these people that he read an article about named Bob and Penny. He goes, Bob and Penny, he goes, I read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in this exotic location where they cruise on their 40-foot trawler playing softball and they collect shells. He goes, that's a tragedy. He goes, that's a tragedy. The American Dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells. And the last chapter is you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. And you say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a nice swing and look at my boat. I tell you, that's a lot of truth. That's a lot of truth. And one thing I have just been so blessed with in the last few years out here at church is um, seeing a lot of people retire and seeing people want to stop and say, i got time now. I used to spend 40, 50, maybe 60 hours a week at a job, and now I have that free time. What can I do to further the kingdom? How can I serve? What can I do? What a blessing that is to see. Because we have this American mindset that the closer we get to the end of a race, the more I should stop and enjoy it. No, the closer you get to the end of the race, finish strong. You have more time at the end. You have wisdom. Use that to impact people for Jesus Christ. And what a blessing it is to see people, as they near the end of their race, stop and say, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory for the, for the Lord. we got to remember that. You know, I, I pick on Richard a lot, and the reason I pick on him is because I love him. You know, he was the one that, you know, after I got saved, he was the one that discipled me 25 years ago. He was the one when, you know, Jim stepped down 18 years ago, 19 years ago. I took over. He was just, you know, my biggest fan, if you will, in the sense of supporting me, and I think the world of that guy. He's been telling me he's going to retire for a long time. And he kept changing the date. I just expected him to come in one day and just say, all right, James, I'm done. So um, he's stuck with this day at the end of May, though. And it's kind of funny, the more I talk to him, and before he left, I was just talking to him. And all the stuff he's going to do after he retires. If you want to know what his month of June looks like, his first month of retirement, here it is. He's driving the kids down to church camp. So he's going to spend seven hours, three and a half hours one way, drop them off, three and a half hours, come back on a Monday. He's going to go on a Friday and do that again still going to clean the church every week cuz he's got a discipleship as he does that. He still called me up and said, "Hey, if you got an early morning hospital visit, can you let me know and I'll still go take care of that." So this is just wonderful. We don't have to pay him. And he's still <laughs> still doing everything. He should have retired years ago. I mean, that's a what... what a blessing. Does that mean that you can't go home today cuz a lot of you don't have to work tomorrow? and say, I can't sit outside and enjoy a break? Well, enjoy a break, but as you're enjoying a break, give God glory. Look around at his creation, enjoy it. He prayed up for that day off tomorrow to say, Lord, how can I be purposeful for you? Who can I show love to? Who can I represent Jesus Christ to? I'm the older man, who's the younger man that I need to help take care of? I'm the younger man, who's the older man I should look for? I'm the older woman, who's the younger woman I should help? I'm the younger woman, who's the older woman? If you're right there in the middle, I don't know what you're supposed to do, so pray about that. <laughs> The point is, what is a tragedy? A tragedy is living a full life without Jesus Christ. That's the tragedy. And I go back to the point we said at the beginning. How many of us are running a race? We don't know where we're running it. We don't know why we're running it. We don't even know where we're going. We're running with uncertainty. I don't want to add, but I look at this Manasin, an early disciple opening up his house. Man, that guy ran the race, it sure looks like. What an example that is. Verse 17. Come to Jerusalem. The brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went into with us to James, and all the elders were present. We had greeted them. He told in detail all the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. This is the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. Let me tell you what God's doing in my life. You tell me what God's doing in your life, and we're going to glorify God together. See, take a look right here. Verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. The Lord. They received him gladly because they're excited to see what God is doing. One of the most difficult passages, I think, in the Bible is in Romans where it says you're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That is actually really difficult to do. If you're having a great day and somebody contacts you and they're having an awful day, it is difficult to put your great day on hold and weep with those who weep. Now flip that around. You're having a bad day. And you just want to sit there and have a little woe is me pity party for yourself. And someone's having a great day. You're supposed to put your bad day on hold and glorify God for what he's doing in their lives. Because why? It's not about you. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ and seeing people get saved. So therefore, Paul shows up, and I'm going to tell you what the Lord's doing in my life, and they're going to rejoice Because God is good. And that's the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. There's an accountability here that Paul is doing. We know later on in Acts 24, he's bringing a gift to help them. This is the way it's supposed to be. So who's James there in verse 18? There's a lot of James in the Bible, a lot of James. We know it's not one of the Jameses because he was beheaded about 15, 20 years ago. There's another James, one of the apostles, James the Lesser. Probably don't think it was him. The one we probably think it is was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who also probably wrote the book of James. Now, I hope that's an encouragement to you. You may have very close, unsaved loved ones. I don't know, brothers, sisters, spouses, kids, friends, I don't know. And they're not getting it. James, the half-brother of Jesus, didn't get it until Christ died. There's always hope. And here we are now, fast forward a couple decades, the guys running the church in Jerusalem. He saw Christ in the flesh. He lived with Christ in the flesh. And it still took something to get his attention there. But there's still hope. Now, look at what they're doing again. They tell everything that the Lord is doing with the Gentiles. Verse 19, they glorify God. I like this. I like this a lot. Let's do the things that glorify God. We were created for his glory. Let's do the things that make God happy. How simple is that? I just want to share with you two verses. If you want to know what makes the Lord happy, it's both out of the book of Luke, Luke 15. The first one is this, Luke 15, verse 7. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Luke 15, verse 10. Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels over God, over one sinner who repents. You know what makes God happy? It's when sinners repent. If that's what makes God happy, shouldn't that be our focus and goal? If that is what makes heaven stop and throw a party, shouldn't we be a part of that? Shouldn't that be our goal? I want heaven to stop and throw a party. So therefore, I want to see sinners get saved. That's what matters. I want to be on the inside of that. My boys were just learning recently what the idea of an inside joke is. They Just learning the concept of it's an inside joke. I don't know where they got it. So I believe it was Leighton, our fourth, The other day was just laughing, by himself. Really weird. Like you know how the kid laughs to get your attention, so therefore you can say, "Hey, what's so funny?" And so he's laughing by himself. What's so funny? So okay, Layden, what's what's? are you laughing about? Oh, Dad, it's an inside joke. You don't even know what you're talking about. Why don't you take your inside joke outside? You know, you know, you don't know. I want to be on the inside of this. I have insider information. What makes heaven rejoice? Sinners getting saved. I want to make that my goal then. I want to stop on earth and see someone get saved, see the gospel presented, and and my mind stop and say, heaven just rejoiced. Because that's what matters more than anything. What makes you rejoice and what makes me rejoice on this earth? Think about that. Let's just be honest. Long weekends, time off from work, extra money, this or that. Yeah, Heaven doesn't seem to get excited about those things. Heaven gets excited about eternal things. And we're created to think about eternity. That's hard for us to let go of this world. It really is. That's where it goes back to the collecting shells. It goes back to the let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. How do we get that mindset that that's all that matters? you got to want what your dad wants more than what you want. That's hard to do. we got this thing we do with the boys that when it's their birthday, they get to choose what they want to do, and I'll take them out, just me and them. And they can choose whatever they want, within reason, obviously. We'll pick a town. They get to choose where we eat, what stores you want to go to. Okay, you got your birthday money. What do you want to spend it on? And so we'll go spend the afternoon going to these different stores, whatever they want to go to, spend as much time as you want, just them and me, pick the restaurant. You choose everything like that. So they pick. And and they went through this phase where almost every time they picked, they picked Wendy's and Bowling Green. Because if you've ever been to Wendy's and Bowling Green, the one by the Walmart, they have that drink machine. It's got like 10,000 combinations of whatever you want to make. And so they would just, that's the greatest thing in the world, is to go up there and just mix all this different stuff. And that's what we would do. They were thrilled. So we would go to Wendy's, they'd get their food, they'd get their drink, whatever. And I would try to find something. if I made a list of my top restaurants, you know, Wendy's isn't in the top five, 10, 50, 100. You know, it's just not. I can find something there, but it's just not my thing. So after a while, I would find something. And then after a while, I just, there's no reason for me to spend the money. I really don't want it. And so I'm sitting there. I'm letting, I'm enjoying them. I'm enjoying them doing it. But they started noticing, I'm not eating. So then birthdays started coming up, and hey, where are we going to go? We start the countdown. The way our birthdays in our house are scheduled, you know, we've got some spring, some summer, the fall, and they're all about 40, 45 days apart. So once the one birthday is done, we start the countdown to the next one. It's just what we do. So where do you want to go? And it's like this long conversation. So as they started getting older, about a week or two before their birthday, just randomly in the van, we're driving, hey, Dad, yeah, what's your favorite restaurant? Oh, Wendy's, I love Wendy's. Wendy's is my favorite (laughs) restaurant. So we go to Wendy's. So then after a while, as they're getting older, it was really Elias, the oldest one that really started figuring this out. He started going, Dad, what's your favorite restaurant? Oh, Wendy's, whatever. Because no. They got this little phrase they used with me. They go, Dad, don't give the pastor answer. I said, (laughs) I said, What's what's the pastor answer? Because the pastor answers where we really don't answer. You just like quote some verse, and you don't even really answer the question. I said, "Isn't that the best answer?" You just give them a verse, because my opinion doesn't matter. We want to know what you really. This is what they said. We know what you think, not what the Bible says. Well, the the Bible says Wendy's is in hell. That's what it says. says. So anyway, so it's just the conversations going on. What do you like? What do you want? All this other type of stuff. And so. I Finally, I'm figuring out what's going on, and so I mention, okay, fine. You know, there's this, there's this one Chinese restaurant, BG's. It's kind of nice. I kind of like it. So as we get closer to Elias' birthday, Elias, where do you want to go out to eat? Oh, I want to go to this Chinese restaurant in Bowling Green. Lias, you don't like Chinese food. You've never eaten at a Chinese restaurant. You don't like your mom. You don't like the buffets. You think it's weird. Everybody else touches it. I mean, she's, you firstborns, God love you. But it's just what it is. And so what happens is he really wants to go. And why does he want to go? Because that's what makes his dad happy. And I realized his joy is making me happy. He actually will enjoy the day more by me choosing where I want to go out to eat and just spending time with me. And as we went to that restaurant, dad, do you like it? Do you like it? Because his joy is seeing his dad happy. Christians... You need to get to the point where your joy is seeing your dad happy. And when you see your dad happy, you'll experience a joy you've never experienced before. Because when you base your joy off of getting everything you want, yeah, it's temporary. There's a fleeting moment. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. But what it really comes down to is when we as children stop and say, this makes my dad happy, so I want to do this, there's a joy that you've never experienced before. That's the goal. Everything else, according to Ecclesiastes, vanity is vanity. It's all vanity. One translation, meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. Even though I got everything I wanted, it still feels meaningless. True joy comes by stopping and saying, what makes my dad happy? And what I see right here with Paul, and I see the church going back to Acts 21, Paul says, I just want to tell you that the Gentiles are getting saved. And the church says that's all we want to hear. To God be the glory that people are getting saved. It goes back to that song. Let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. Now we're going to close the song here a little bit. And Bethany, we're still doing God, Lord, You're Beautiful. Um, we're going to sing a song here just a little bit. Lord, You're Beautiful. And there's a line in that song. Oh, Lord, You're Beautiful. Your face is all I seek. Now, I'm not trying to tell you now to not sing. (laughs) If I don't sing it, that means I'm not responsible for it. No, I'm not saying that. But we're going to sing that song to close. And we're going to say that line, Your face is all I seek. That's a a really powerful phrase. Your face, Lord, is all I seek. Wow, do we really mean that? And and as you're going to pray that here in a little bit, you're going to sing that here in a little bit. Maybe it's not there yet. I can't say it's there for me, but when I sing that, Lord, that's what I want. I want it to be your face is all I see. I just want to make my dad happy. I want to give you the glory because that's when I find real joy and fulfillment. So, Lord, that's, that's what I want. And the thing is, it goes back to the TV dinner. You can compartmentalize God. You can. And you may say, I'm giving him the biggest area. Amen. But he wants all of it mixed together goes back to the seashells. I want to stand before the Lord and show him the shell collection. Lord, this is what I did for you. And so I see Paul, I see James, I see Manason, I see these people that stopped and said, Lord, it's all about you. No matter the cost, no matter what it is, it's all about you. And what does that look like? And that's what I want to live. And that's what I want us to do too, as individuals and as a church. Worship team, if you come forward here. If you guys would stand with me for this final song, Let's get our hearts prayed up for this. Lord. Just even that word Lord, Master, God, your face is always seek. That's that's what we're gonna sing. Prepare our hearts for what that looks like as individuals and as a church. If there's someone here, what does it look like to seek you completely? As a church, what does it look like to seek you completely? Help us not serve the God of free time, but to serve you, to glorify you in all we say and all we do, Lord. Let it truly be your face that's all we seek. A lot going on the next couple of days, graduations, pray for safety, opportunities to represent you to people that we may not see very often. A lot of people, day off tomorrow, let it be a purposeful day off in you. Lord, a wedding this afternoon, two becoming one in Christ. I pray for Heather and Wayne and your blessing upon them. But Lord, for right here, right now, your face is all we seek in your name. Amen.